As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, Spurs welcome their new manager. Will he make them continental or will Spurs drive Conte mental? Champions League, the adventures of Ron in Bergamo, and much, much more. And weekend action, Manchester derby, plus what would have happened if Ronaldo had joined Manchester City? We look at the science. All of that and much, much more in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Thursday, the 4th of November. And hello, listener. You being here with us is, in many ways, the only award we'll ever need here at Totally. Although, if you'd like to vote for us at the FSA Awards as uh, best podcast, don't let us stop you. Some stiff competition we're facing there, actually. Not least from the Athletic's very own uh, football cliches, Adam Hurry's little project there. Hmm. All right, anyway, FSA Awards. Uh, who have we got for you this week? Excitingly, there's Duncan Alexander. All right, Duncan. Hello, James. Nice. Uh, also with us, Adam Crafton. Described to me just yesterday, Adam, as the most in-the-know person at The Athletic. <laughs> About what in particular? <laughs> wow, that's what we'll be finding out today. Uh, oh, and Michael Cox has turned up again. Hello, Michael. Hi, James. I bet you're excited, no? Because there's so much to talk about this week with the Champions League and the Premier League and uh, uh, perhaps what we should begin with, Antonio Conte back. And not just back, but back and at Spurs, which is like a kind of your darkest footballing what-if come true. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. I mean, I think Conte's at a level where he should be able to pick pretty much any club in Europe um, as his next destination. So the fact he's turned up at Spurs, I think, is yeah, a massive coup for them. Um, I'd kind of compare it to when Liverpool got Klopp, actually. I know people might kind of laugh at that because you think of Liverpool as this ultra-successful club now. But, I mean, Liverpool, towards the end of the Rodgers days, were in pretty much the same position Spurs were, kind of knocking around 6th, 7th, best team in the league maybe. And obviously Klopp's appointment was the transformation um, for them to get where they are now. We know that Conte is a different manager to Klopp. Klopp had experience of being at a club for, I think, eight years. He was at Dortmund and he's going to do a similar stint at Liverpool. Conte, you think, probably won't be there uh, that long at Tottenham. But as a short-term appointment over the next, uh, what, 18 months, it suddenly gives Spurs, I think, a great chance of returning to uh, the Champions League places. What do you think, Adam? Conte is the new Klopp? 
Yeah, I think it's amazing for Spurs. Um, when I when when I first heard the sort of rumours coming out of Italy on when was it sort of Saturday Sunday, particularly after the Manchester United game, I thought Conte was using Spurs um, as a way to sort of push Manchester United into into doing something with Solskjaer. Um, so I think it's an incredible deal that they've been able to pull off. Um, I just worry slightly, you know, just from a purely from a resources point of view, when you consider that Conte usually spends two or three years at a club, can Spurs spend quickly and efficiently enough to actually give him a chance to compete for the biggest trophies? Um, or do we have to reassess what success is for Antonio Conte? Is success actually just getting Spurs back into the Champions League and framing it slightly differently. I think that's also a different mindset for him as someone who, you know, prides himself as someone who wins trophies. Mm. So I'll be interested to see how he deals with that and how Spurs deal with those ambitions. The almost instantaneous success that he's had pretty much everywhere as a manager, at Juventus, at Chelsea, at Inter, it does suggest that Spurs fans can really dream big with it, with him arriving. Dun- Duncan, what do you think? What do the numbers say? Well, obviously, as Adam said, there he, you know, he's known for coming in quickly and turning clubs around. And but also, you got to remember, he doesn't necessarily have to do it with like superstar players. You know, brought Ashley Young into Inter, which I don't think anyone flagged up as a possibility before it happened. But I think also we can't always judge a manager on his previous pattern of what he's done. I mean, everyone when Pep Guardiola joined City, they said, "Oh, well, he only does three seasons max at a club." So, but obviously, he's now almost doubled that. So. You know, maybe Conte, he could stick around for years at Spurs. So I don't think it's necessarily the case that he's got to do something within the first couple of years. But I think we should see a pretty quick improvement, I would imagine. Mm. His checklist at Spurs is presumably a David Moysian must-improve passing, creating chances, defending. But we'll talk about uh, what awaits in the, the first Premier League game later on. They're away at Everton, although there is that Europa Conference League match this Thursday evening but uh, just on the subject of managerial moves Adam what's the latest on the Newcastle situation they'd announced or let it be known amid much uh, trumpeting that Unai Emery Europa League winning manager at uh, Villarreal would be returning to the Premier League to to uh, helm their their battle for survival but then he announced the next day that that nothing of the sort was happening so what's going on now yeah, uh, so what we, we're speaking Thursday morning. Uh, it sounds like Eddie Howe is now top of the list. That that you know they've already held talks repeatedly with Eddie Howe. That was even before the Emery stuff. He was one of the people that they've been speaking to. But the board decided that uh, Emery was their first choice um, ahead of Howe. They were very, 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 very confident that they had him. Certainly by late Tuesday night. Certainly other managerial candidates felt by that point that it was an inevitability that Unai Emery was getting the job um, and that he was going to go to Newcastle. And then by Wednesday morning, he'd, he'd pulled out of it. Um, and there's a bit of sort of to and fro over why exactly that happened. There's suggestions about Emery didn't like some of the clauses that were being put into the contract. There's other suggestions that he was just talked out of it by his family and by uh, the president at Villarreal. For Newcastle's part, it's quite embarrassing, really, because you always want to under-promise and over-deliver, and they've sort of made a bit of a habit at the start of over-promising and under-delivering slightly. They did that when it was made very clear through the media that Steve Bruce was going to be sacked very quickly, then he wasn't, then he was in the dugout, then he was eventually sacked. And then you've had the sort of the situation this week where fans thought they were getting a manager who wins Europa Leagues, who's been at Arsenal and Paris Saint-Germain, 
has a really good record in Spain and, and now they have Eddie Howe who himself is a really good option um, but probably now feels a little bit disappointing just because of the way that it's been managed um, but maybe that's what happens when you know you have to remember Newcastle still don't have a chief executive they still don't have a sporting director they're having to do it back to front because of the precarity of their situation in the Premier League so I think we should expect it all to be a little it, it all feels a little bit amateur at the moment I think it will continue to for the first few months until they sort it out but I think that's where it's at I mean it does look like Eddie Howe will be the next Newcastle manager though mm. well uh, away the lads as I imagine the the headlines has all better than been done Emery was the, was the best one. <laughs> nice. Okay. So a couple of months to sort it all out. Luckily, they're not running against any kind of clock there. There's no great pressure on uh, Newcastle <laughs> at, at the moment. Uh, very good. We'll be uh, touching on uh, what awaits them this weekend. They're away at Brighton. And loads of other things about the Premier League weekend. But, of course, next up, let's discuss the Champions League. Match day four of six this Tuesday and Wednesday in the Champions League. Four teams now through to the last 16 by Munich, Juventus, Ajax and Liverpool. We've already sewn up top spot with that 2-0 win over Atletico Madrid Wednesday evening. Elsewhere, a big win for Barcelona away in Kiev. It was only 1-0, but that's only their second goal of the tournament and enough to move them back into the qualifying places. They're two points above Benfica, who they'll be facing next. Benfica, by the way, got battered 5-2 by the very mighty-looking Bayern Munich. Chelsea went to Malmo, had 23 shots, but only the one goal. Still, that keeps them comfortable in second place in their group behind Juventus. They need one point from the uh, next two games. PSG got held at the previously pointless RB Leipzig, which meant that Man City, with their 4-1 win over Bruges, went top of Group A. Phil Foden, Raheem Sterling and John Stones on the score sheet for City. Stones putting into his own net via his face. Not the only painful moment on Wednesday involving Stones, there was also Duzan Stadic taking the goalpost between the legs. I don't know if you saw that, as he scored Ajax's equaliser on their way to a 3-1 win at Dortmund. A very aggrieved Borussia Dortmund. They were on the wrong end of one of a number of controversial red card decisions midweek. That one, uh, seeing Matt Hummels uh, leaving early. Uh, Felipe at Anfield was the other. Somewhat egregious for some people. Bit of decision-making. Let's talk, anyway, about Liverpool against Atletico. First of all, what was the Felipe Red for? Do we know now? I think they said it was for the um, cynical foul in the end, didn't they? Because uh, there was some suggestion that it was the fact that he didn't turn up to receive his yellow card and, 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 and thus saw it upgraded to a red. I wasn't sure. There was a lot happening. Yeah, but that would have been a yellow, then another yellow, and the ref pulled out a straight right. red. So, uh... Uh, fair. Unless, I mean, is it, no. is it possible that the ref just made up a new rule because the player mm. was being so rude at the time. Oh, I, I, of course he did. I mean, he was surely going to give a yellow. Mm. Because if it's a red, usually they get sent off straight away. They don't do this whole thing of, you know, come over and get yellow. He was going to give him a yellow. And he got so pissed off with the player walking away that he thought, well, I'm just going to send you off. Whether it should have been two yellows or a yellow and then a red or whatever. I think it's, it seemed to me fairly obvious. It was it was a about the referee's frustration with the situation. But I must say, those, those tactical fouls, I, I always say this, but... I think foul side that should be should be red cards and particularly that foul because I think sometimes people accept too much the situation. Oh, he's trying to break up a counter attack. He'll foul the player. That's worth a yellow. But if you take that kind of tactical element out of the equation, what has he done? He's planted his studs mm. into the back of Mane's shin. In any other situation, if Mane was going away from goal 
and a player, a defender did that, you'd say, well, that's a clear red card challenge. You studded him in his shin. So, yeah, I was, I mean, I found it quite funny, but I just quite like those fellas being red cards, to be honest. Excellent. Uh, what do we make of Liverpool's performance in this surprisingly routine win? As you point out on the excellent theanalyst.com, Duncan, it's not even bonfire night and they've already won their Champions League group, have Klopp's men. Yeah, I mean, statistically, based on power rankings, this was the hardest group in the whole tournament. So the fact Liverpool have gone through at this stage for the first time um, is is amazing. And like you say, it was a very routine win. I mean, obviously, going 2-0 up early doors and then the ceiling opposition go down to 10 men is is useful. But um, once again, a bit like the Manchester United game a few weeks ago, Liverpool were able to kind of play out the um, the, the second half with no real, no real danger. Obviously, a couple of goals disallowed for VAR, one for each team. But it was, yeah, routine. Um, obviously, Trent Alexander-Arnold got a lot of credit. His ninth, eighth and ninth assist in the Champions League takes him level with Philippe Coutinho, which is quite a um, telling point to get to. But I thought um, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain was, was really good. Probably his best game since he came back from injury this time. And, uh, yeah, he went off late with a potential injury, but I don't think it was too bad. But, I mean, obviously, with the number of midfield absentees Liverpool have got, him him playing well is, uh, is good, I think. Mm, particularly given who they're facing this weekend, the uh, midfield-tastic West Ham also going off injured Roberto Firmino, who was on as a sub at half-time and then going off uh, 25 minutes later. So that's a, a concern. Michael, meantime, who was that team dressed as Atletico Madrid? <laughs> they were terrible. I can't remember last time I've seen Atletico defend that badly. I mean, it was it was incredible, really. I don't think the shape helped. I mean, they're playing through at the back, as, as they often have done over the last couple of years. But there was so much space on the outside of Hermoso, who picked up a really early yellow, uh, yellow card for fouling Salah and then just was scared to tackle him. And, I mean, funnily enough, Atleti's uh, best player was Carrasco, who was the left wing back. And he was pushing really high, but that just meant there was so much space to break into for Salah. And then when Carrasco did retreat deep and helped out against Salah, it left space for um, Alexander-Arnold, who got the two assists. So it was really down that side where where Simeone's side really struggled. Um, but yeah, it, was, it wasn't odd to see them getting so many yellow cards and arguing with the referee, but it was very odd to see them quite so bad defensively. I mean, Liverpool really, I think, would be disappointed they only won that 2-0 because they could have had mm. 4 or 5 quite easily. Yeah, Atletico dropping to third place in that group now with matches against Milan and Porto to come. Uh, meantime, Tuesday night, Man United, in a particularly lively game away in Bergamo, a 2-2 draw with Atalanta. Adam, would you care to try and analyse this for us? Um, I didn't actually see the full game. I've seen highlights ah. um, of the All game. Right. Well, as Daniel's story writes, it's quite reassuring that you can miss a Man United match, see the result and know exactly how it panned out to the letter. Uh, in synopsis, United did some catastrophic defending, fell behind, and then Ronaldo grabbed an equaliser in first half stoppages. Second half, United did some catastrophic defending, fell behind, but then Ronaldo grabbed an equaliser in second half stoppages. In fact, let's have a quick listen to Italian commentary on that last minute equaliser from Big Ron. All right, Duncan, some Ronaldo numbers perhaps. Yes, he continues to surge up the Champions League scoring charts. If he was a football club on his own, which I guess you could kind of argue he sort of is at the moment, um, then he would be the 21st highest scoring team in Champions League history, which, which is pretty reasonable for a, That's for a single man. That's extraordinary. 
Yeah. I mean, I think the history books will show this season that there were four English teams in the Champions League, Liverpool, City, Chelsea and Cristiano Ronaldo. It's quite, it's quite funny though, isn't it? I remember when he signed and there was people, I mean, particularly stuff that Michael wrote as well, that was basically saying, you know, it's very likely Cristiano Ronaldo has a great season, but that doesn't mean Manchester United have a great season. And I think that's exactly what we are now seeing. That, And it sort of ends with this sort of very tedious culture war about is Ronaldo good for United, is Ronaldo bad for United? When, you know, we know he's scoring goals, we know he's basically keeping the manager's job at the moment. But it's still that really interesting sort of counterfactual of, one, where would Man United be if they hadn't signed him? Because I think they'd be a very mm. different team that would still have Mason Greenwood and Jadon Sancho and Marcus Rashford at the heart of the attack. And obviously, you know, I suppose pushing it forward, where, where, do Manchester, where would Manchester City be um, right. as well as a team? Well, that's, that's a really in- interesting question. Would you like to explore that one? The billboard saying, welcome to Manchester in blue with with big Chris on them. What, what would we be seeing right now? Jadon Sancho actually getting a game? What else? I certainly think from United's point of view, I mean, if you look at the way they started the season, they had Paul Pogba playing from the left. Mason Greenwood was playing a bit more through the middle. I imagine it would have meant Sancho had got a few more games down the right. The team probably would have been a little bit more balanced than it has been. I'm not saying it would... I don't know if it would have been better. I'm sure the same failings that we've seen you know for the last couple of years from Solskjaer would have been present and evident um but in terms of you know if United had that ambition which Solskjaer always talks about about being one of the hardest working fastest pressing teams that was surely going to be more likely with younger fresher personnel um and I'm pretty sure that's what he was planning over the summer until Manchester City decided they wanted Cristiano Ronaldo and then Manchester United decided they shouldn't have Cristiano Ronaldo. So it's, a, it's an interesting thing. It's, it's where I have a bit of sympathy for Solskjaer in that he basically had to rip up two years of planning to try and accommodate you know, what was considered a must-have signing. Mm. What, would, what would it mean for City had they had him? It would have been an intriguing game at the Parc des Princes that time when Messi hmm. got PSG the win and it would have been... Of course, the, the big clash between the two. Michael, what do you think? City with Cristiano Ronaldo equal or more or less than City without? No, I think they would have been a bit better. I mean, I think City do have an obvious need for a centre-forward. They did spend their summer trying to get a centre-forward, albeit that was Harry Kane rather than Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, and I think Guardiola probably would have had slightly more authority uh, to leave him out when, when needed tactically. I just think Guardiola's so secure in his position and has such a standing in the game and has worked with, with top players before and sometimes been been happy to take big tactical decisions. I, I just think Ronaldo's such a, a big thing at United that it seems he has to play whenever he's fit. And uh, yeah, I agree with Adam. I think there's been a, a real damaging impact on other players. I, I think Sancho has, has got opportunities and, and struggled to really justify his place in the team. I'm sure he'll come good, but the situation with Greenwood is incredible. I mean, he scored three goals in his first three games, two of them when he played up front. Um, and I thought he was going to have a fantastic season, maybe challenge for top scorer in the league. But he's only scored once since Ronaldo came in, and I think nine or ten games, partly because he hasn't played and partly because he's just not going to play through the middle. He's always going to play from the right. So I'd be most concerned about him and whether that would damage his his development long term. And also just because I think, yeah, this was shaping up to be a great season for Greenwood and that has been massively compromised. It's It's also one of, I think potentially the biggest myths around that 
and it's something everyone says. Oh, the, the the fact that he will see Ronaldo in the dressing room on the training <laughs> pitch, just having him to learn from will be this transformative environment. When, you know, Anthony Martial and Marcus Rashford had Zlatan Ibrahimovic for, for quite a while, or they had Wayne Rooney for a while, and we kept being told, and Cavani as well, we kept being told, this will turn them into poachers. This will turn them into... Um, you know, really pure finishers. It will change the way they attack. It, it just doesn't work like that. And often, actually, it just restricts opportunities. And I'm not, I'm not sure if Ronaldo, Ronaldo being there necessarily really will damage Mason Greenwood long-term or anything like that. But clearly, it has changed the way that his season was going to go. Um, and even that goal, which Michael mentioned that he scored, it was, it was a goal from nothing. It wasn't a goal that he could easily score again in the system at the moment. It was, you know, a brilliant goal from 30 yards against Leicester. You say that, Adam, but the players aren't eating desserts anymore, so I don't think you can underestimate that. Not only that, but I was also told that another player has stopped having sugar in his tea as a result of watching Ronaldo so closely. If Cristiano's listening to this, he'll be saying, but hang on a second, I've scored more than half of all of Man United's goals in the Champions League uh, so far this season they'd be out of uh, the last 16 reckoning were I not there. And it, it's a fair point that you make, Cristiano. And a lovely little vignette in Bergamo when uh, the Atalanta manager Gasparini went up to him as they went down the tunnel and said, Ronaldo, with a big smile, vaffanculo. Uh, anyway, beyond the Ronaldo question, Michael, to borrow the words of one of the greats, United's performance, do that against City at the weekend and see what happens. Yeah, Paul Scholes has really got quite angry, hasn't he, in the last couple of weeks, having having not really heard him say much of interest for a few years, quite enjoying it. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is Solskjaer has quite a good record against Manchester City. And uh, I think that's partly because his management is actually suited to those games. I think he quite suits being the underdog. He's very good doing what he did against Tottenham, being reactive, being a little bit more defensive, picking a surprise formation. And he's done that well against Manchester City. Um you would expect that he'll want to continue with the the back three, but they've got they seem to have really big injury problems at the back. I mean, Varane's out. There's a suggestion Lindelof might be out. So if you want to play three centre backs, you're either going to bring presumably Luke Shaw inside to play left side of centre back where he has played, or you think, hang on, I've run out of centre backs. I'm going to have to play a back four. So I'm not quite sure how they'll go, but um, his selection will certainly be very interesting. For for those of you who who did see the full game from the highlights. So I'd seen on Twitter everyone saying Eric Bailly had had an amazing game for Man United against Atlanta. I then watched the goals and it seemed like they both came from space that he had vacated. Is that unfair? Did he play well? Did he show the vignettes that suggest if he just gets a run of games and stays fit, he could be the best centre-half in Europe? <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. I mean, it was, it was classic Eric Bailly and... I mean, he's a reactor, isn't he? He reacts to danger, I think, rather than senses it. And um, he's often a few yards out of position, but he's very good at sprinting across quickly and getting a block in, which he did a couple of times. So, um, yeah, somewhere in between, I would say. I mean, I, I think people were just pleased he wasn't a complete liability, as as has sometimes been the case. But uh, it's clear Solskjaer doesn't really fancy him much. I mean, the way Maguire played against Leicester, I, I don't think I've ever seen a player so unfit before and still start a game. So Solskjaer really must have no faith whatsoever in Bailly. Um, but yeah, he was all right in midweek. Yeah. And just to say, United gave Bailly a new long-term contract about six months ago. Well, they, they're going to need him because they've just lost Raphael Varane again, of course, in, in the course of the game 
in Bergamo, and he's going to be out for about a month with a hamstring injury as they prepare to face goal machine Man City, Duncan. Yeah, I mean, they haven't kept a clean sheet without Varane in the starting eleven this season, so that's a, a big blow. And you do wonder whether he was rushed back a bit quickly. I mean, um, anyone looking for narrative ahead of the derby, there's quite a lot, obviously. Um, 25% of the red cards in Manchester derby history in the Premier League have been to Cristiano Ronaldo, two of eight. So um, can he make it a big three? It's quite a low number of red cards for such a big kind of game. But um, hmm. obviously Ronaldo back in his first spell a couple of times. But um, yeah, it might be something to, to keep an eye on. Well, a fortnight ago, Man United were coming from a bracing result in Europe against Atalanta and were facing one of the top sides in the Premier League. And of course, it ended with them completely collapsing against Liverpool. Are we expecting something similar this time? or more of what Michael was talking about before, the remarkable recent record of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer against Pep Guardiola? I mean, obviously, our forecasts for Manchester United games get examined very closely, but um, so who knows? But I think they're not going to set up in the same way as they did against Liverpool, are they? Uh, I think the Spurs game is more of a blueprint for what it'll be like. So, you know, City have already failed to score in three Premier League games this season, which is as many as last season in total. So... Um, yeah, I could yeah could see it being quite cagey at the start. I, I would. Mm. I just think it's first goal wins in mm. all of these Manchester derbies. Whenever United seem to score first, they beat City. Um, you know, I think once City go one 0 up at Old Trafford with the way it currently is at United, I think United would lose confidence very quickly. Weirdly, um, United go level on points with City um, if they beat them, yeah. um, which is quite remarkable. So just given the way that we consider the two the two teams um so it's actually you know it's a, it's a big game for Solskjaer but it's actually quite a big game for for City as well mm. yeah the last week or so has not been great the League Cup exit against West Ham and then the defeat to Palace uh, at the weekend but back to doing City things Wednesday against Bruges are you concerned or do you think Man United supporters should be concerned that with all these teams hunting managers the music's going to stop and Man United will be left without a chair or are you banking on Pochettino being free soon well I'm not banking on Pochettino being free by Monday morning um, which you know if, if I mean, given the way United have played this season it's not impossible by any means that City completely turn them over on Saturday and then we have the same situation as we did two weeks ago where you have a Monday that just feels completely as though United are considering whether to sack their head coach um, and Pochettino certainly won't be available next week. Um, I had some conversations this week with people close to Pochettino who were basically just saying, you know, that you know he's actually, despite how complicated it is at PSG, that he definitely wants to give it the rest of this season. Um, he only recently signed a new contract. So that's not going to be one, I don't think, that that's available for United in the short term. There is another issue in that the executive vice chairman, Ed Woodward, is on his way out of the club, um, announced his resignation in April, still there um, at the moment, not entirely clear what his leaving date is, but also it appears that Richard Arnold is going to take over, but has not yet taken over. And I think there is a bit of anxiety, both from Woodward in terms of, he. I don't think he necessarily would want his final act to be sacking the guy that he basically went all in on for the last couple of years, and I'm sure Arnold is a little bit anxious about making his first sort of really public-facing act to be 
let's go and sack the club legend when there's nobody who's particularly fantastic on the market at the moment. So I think it goes beyond simply what we're seeing on the pitch at the moment and a slight vacuum um, in terms of who's making the decisions at Manchester United at the moment. All right. Well, as Duncan was mentioning, were they to win the derby, which they've had a pretty good record in of late, they will go level with Manchester City in the standing. So perhaps the need for change isn't all that immediate. Anyway, next up, let's talk about the title race. It's the Paddy Power supporters line and we're speaking to Man United fan Jed ahead of the Manchester derby. Jed. So, yeah, I've got this tattoo, right, with classes permanent and all his face underneath it. But I'm afraid that his job isn't permanent, is it? Oh, well, uh, you know, you could you could change it to uh, ink is permanent, eh? Being a football fan isn't always rewarding, but if it's rewards you're after, then switch to Paddy Power and get a completely free £5 bet builder on the Manchester Derby this weekend. Paddy Power! Pre-match online bet builder bets only. Max one free £5 bet per customer. Minimum two legs must have previously deposited to avail. T's and C's apply. 18 plus begumbleaware.org. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Premier League currently has uh, Manchester City chasing uh, Chelsea and Liverpool at the top of the table. Chelsea this weekend are at home to Burnley, which looks straightforward enough. Burnley have taken just one point from the last seven meetings uh, with the Blues. Uh, West Ham, meantime, will be hosting Liverpool, which is a battle of fourth versus second. Indeed, David Moyes' hammers will leapfrog Liverpool with a win in this game. Are they going to get one? What do you think, Michael? No. All right. Why are you so certain that they won't? Why can you rule anything out with these hammers? No, no, they're playing really well. I mean, I'm not ruling out. I just would guess that it won't happen because Liverpool right. are playing really well. I mean, they, you know, we focused on Manchester United struggles in that five 0 but Liverpool were rampant in the first half and against Atleti on uh, last night they were, I mean, just fantastic for the first twenty minutes. So they're they're playing really well. Um, I'm interested to see Moyes' tactical approach. West Ham have done very well so far, bringing Fornells in from the left flank and him getting combination play going. I think the game in midweek showed that if you leave Alexander-Arnold at all free, you're in real trouble. I mean, he's their best assister. I think he's also their their playmaker in a different sense as well. I think he really gets the passing rhythm going and gets combinations going. Um, and I think the sides are quite similar in a way, in the sense they're very good down the flanks. I think that's where a lot of the... The games are won for both West Ham and Liverpool. I think Liverpool's rotations down the right flank are really good. Um, and I think West Ham have, have switched play very well, got their full-backs forward. And of course, they've got aerial threats in um, in both Antonio and Suchek. So, yeah, I think it'll be an interesting game. But I've, I've been very impressed with Liverpool so far this season. I think there were a few question marks about whether they would automatically return to the level they were at before their injuries. Um, but they pretty much have done. I mean, they've been seriously good so far this season. We had uh, West Ham's midfield pairing of Rice and Suchik described on Monday as the best in the Premier League. Would you go along with that? And could that be where West Ham win the battle? Um, it's difficult. I mean, there's not that many teams who necessarily play with a, a midfield two. Often it's three with one behind. They're quite specific I suppose. They do things that other players don't. I mean, there aren't many central midfielders that carry the ball forward like Rice. And there certainly aren't any central midfielders who are as much of a goal threat as Suchek. So in terms of their favoured metrics, if you like, they probably are the best two. But uh, I'd still rather have, you know, Bernardo Silva and uh, Gundogan or, you know, lots of other combinations that do different things better than they do. 
Yeah, I mean, West Ham, they've made fewer changes to the starting eleven than any other team this season, and they've used the joint fewest players, yet they've got um, nine different goal scorers. So it's like they're getting the most out of a good but not massively uh, layered squad, if you like. And obviously, so far, the Europa League's gone really well for them, um, but you feel like that might start to impact as the, as the winter months roll on. So, yeah, I mean... They are doing really well, but you do wonder how long it can go on. And the other thing is, that one of the criticisms of David Moyes over the last few years has been that you know he's had good runs of form before, but then would come up against a big team and go really, really defensive and really unambitious. And I think this game was quite a big test for him because obviously, as Michael said, we know how well Liverpool are playing, but you know someone like Declan Rice has stepped up in virtually all of his metrics this season. He really has, you know, he's looking like a kind of world class central midfielder. Um, so it's kind of over to him, really, to see if he can kind of instil a, a different kind of philosophy from West Ham in a big game. But it, is, it should be a really interesting match. The, the only thing I'd say about Liverpool is it feels like they have these sort of 30-minute periods of games where they look unstoppable, like champions of Europe level, unstoppable. But then they do, they do seem to give, give you a chance as well. I mean, even, even Man United had a few good chances. Um, against against them, and you obviously had Brighton come back. Brentford did well. Atletico Madrid came back against them as well. Sorry to put you on the spot, Duncan. Is there like XG against? Is that showing any signs of being higher than it might be, or compared to Chelsea in particular? Yeah, I mean they're sort of fifth for open play XG against the season, which is obviously decent enough. But um, you know the likes of Wolves, uh, Crystal Palace are better than them on that. So, but I think it's almost a deliberate. Thing I don't know what Michael thinks, but it feels like Klopp's kind of gone this season. You know, let's make the most of of Trent playing in this kind of almost new sort of position. And you know, this is maybe the the last time we'll get a full, complete season out of the front three, um, Afcon notwithstanding. So it feels like they're almost a bit like they did in twenty seventeen eighteen. It's more tilted towards attacking than defending a little bit. So obviously, I guess they will give up more chances, but so far. Um, it works because they're just scoring a shed load of goals. And isn't that that's, are they like ten games in a row or something scoring three well, or more goals away from? Yeah, home? well the yeah the um, fans of Victorian era Birmingham City. It's quite a, a nervous weekend for them because Liverpool can equal the football league history record of of scoring three or more goals in seven away league games in a row, which has only been done once by by Birmingham in the eighteen nineties. So uh, that's one yeah, of I mean, the big records. I mean, I think of it a lot. It's on the if you go to Birmingham, it's on the on the badge in Latin. So yeah, Michael's kind of nodding in assent to that. Uh, let me just mention that this is West Ham's joint best total after ten games in Premier League history. By the time you hear this podcast, they may well have secured qualification to the knockout stages of the Europa League. They are at Genk on Thursday evening. Currently on three wins out of three, and yet to concede a goal. That Genk match, by the way. David Moyes' 1,000th in management. So, um, salute. What, what, Michael, what? It just feels like loads of managers have yeah. milestones recently. <laughs> like, I, right. I, swear, I swear, like, 10 years ago, you would never yeah. hear about these kind of managerial milestones. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, it's just, you know. I can't help but feel partly responsible, but it has, <laughs> I know what you mean. It does feel like someone's just found a book called, you know, The Best Managers Over 900 Games. And they're going, well, hang right. on, look at this. Is it because there's more talking about football than there used to be 10 years ago? That is probably yeah. true. There, there, there's, yeah. more, there's more need for 
new angles of content, I would suggest. Right. And and there's yeah. a few things, I mean, again, I don't want to, you know, Duncan is responsible for a lot of this, but <laughs> I've got an issue with the, with the phrase make history as well. You know, right. Make history is something really grand. It's not, right. you don't make history by becoming the first player to get 25 assists in the Premier League <laughs> okay. under the age of 22. That's that's a stat. Well, who used the phrase? Was it Duncan with his Victorian Birmingham City business? No, no, it's just it's just said quite a People lot. People in yeah, right. The, you've got quite a long list of things that you have issues with. Uh, not least winning percentages. Oh, Michael. that is a that is a bad one. I think that is a bad one. I, I would agree. I, I've uh, never seen I've never seen that stat used in any constructive way. It's basically okay. it's one of those it's one of those stats. It's a basically a banter stat, isn't it? You know, mm. or a, re- a way that f- fans can turn against their manager by saying, "Look, we've got a this manager's got a thirty percent win rate," e- ignoring the fact that he's always done that, or the the league's changed in quality or whatever. So basically, you're taking away the only thing that Tim Sherwood's ever had in in management. <laughs> Why? What? What's the problem with win percentage? Well, I think there's a few. I mean, they're all quite technical reasons, I suppose. But I mean, it certainly doesn't apply, for example, when a manager gets promoted or relegated. I mean. Bielsa's win percentage is higher than it would be had Leeds gone up first season because they had another season in the Championship racking up wind. But it doesn't mean he's done a better job than if they had gone up first season. Right. Just little things like that. And also over time, I mean, the the inequalities between the big clubs and the small clubs has increased so much that often right. you get a manager at a big club now doing a very average job who has a win percentage comparable to when a club had glory days in the 80s yeah. and 90s. So it's just, there's so many reasons it doesn't really work. And I also don't really like, I don't really like the fact you count a draw and a loss as the same right. thing. Well, a draw is better than a loss, isn't it? Well, all right, Laurie Sanchez, because as I pointed out to you on Twitter a few <laughs> weeks ago, the only time I've ever seen someone combine a win and draw percentage was on Laurie Sanchez's personal website. Um, I think he had a combined win and draw percentage of 53% or something, which sounds good, but a lot of those games were draws. Um, there is, um, there's one more record for Liverpool this weekend, which is they can go cop 26 unbeaten. Yay. Um, make history. Exactly. Make history. Very nice. Okay. We'll be talking uh, about more of the Premier League drummer in store next with Everton Spurs. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You're listening to the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. And right now, Paddy are offering a free £5 bet builder on the Manchester Derby this weekend. So if you fancy City to win, Ronaldo to score, there to be more than two and a half goals and Harry Maguire to get booked, well, fill your boots. It's over 18s only, T's and C's apply and please, 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 gamble responsibly. Sunday 2 o'clock at Goodison, Conte's new Premier League adventure gets underway. Uh, we've talked a little bit about Conte. What about Everton though? Could, could they be in the market for a manager soon? Beaten 2-1 at Wolves on Monday night. That's now three defeats in a row. Michael, you were at Goodison for the second of those when things fell apart 
so dramatically against Watford. Yeah, that was just an incredible, spectacular collapse. I think they were 2-1 up with 15 minutes remaining. And mm. they just self-destructed. They were just so open. And Watford, who I don't really think played particularly well for the vast majority of that game, ended up scoring five, which is a concern at, at any time. But I think particularly when your manager is Benitez. I mean, Benitez now is is clearly, in modern football terms, is on the defensive end of the scale. He's brought in to shore things up, to make sure you're well-organised and well-structured. And Everton just clearly didn't have that. Um, they were poor against Wolves in midweek. They improved a little bit at half-time with a, a change of formation. But I think it actually goes beyond results. I mean, the most surprising thing, or the most notable thing from my trip to Goodison was when Benitez substituted Anthony Gordon after about an hour. He'd been playing all right. And just the boos were deafening for a player who had played all right and a player who was getting substituted for um, Richarlison was making his comeback from injury, who's arguably their best player. So it just seems like the mood at, at Goodison is is not very good for various reasons. So um, I don't think this is a particularly bad... In fact, I think it's a good game for Conte to have first time up away from home. Um, he won't have had much time on the training ground. He's had, you know, half a week and obviously this... Um, European game in the way as well but um, I don't think Everton are in, in good form at the moment so I think yeah I think I think Conte could start with a win I mean unfortunately for Rafa I mean this is the job he took on I mean there's going to be a lot of sympathy for him I think in the next few weeks as there is the potential that that Goodison crowd turns quite sharply because that he, he has very little credit in the bank I think um, with the fan base and not you know there's a tolerance I think for him, but I'm not sure there's necessarily goodwill. But he he knew that when he took over, um, and it always felt a little bit uneasy. Um, I worry a little bit for them in that I think they've got City and Liverpool in two of their next four games as well. Um, so there's a potential this gets a bit more difficult um, before it gets easier for Rafa. But on the other hand, I mean they spent so little in the summer as well. The squad's quite misshapen. Um, I think it's a far harder job maybe than, than a lot of people appreciate that he's got. But equally, I don't really have that much um, sympathy, you know, if the fans start to turn because that's, you know, that's what he knew before he went there. Mm. They were so bad in the first half at Wolves, really just so open. They made Wolves look like, you know, this incredible... I mean, Wolves are playing pretty well, actually, but I think, you know, people talk about critical players and one-man teams and stuff, but Takure's injury was, was huge for Everton. He was playing so well for them, and their midfield just looks just, you know, weak without him. So, yeah, I mean, every manager is beholden to um, to injuries and missing players, as as maybe Liverpool found out last season. But, uh, yeah, it doesn't feel like he's got much credit to play with. M- Michael, what do you think Conte... How do you think he'll set up? Do you think he'll go straight to three at the back with this Tottenham squad, or where did he go? Yeah, I think he will. I mean, he, he likes three five two or three four three. I'm I'm not sure either are a perfect fit for Tottenham, but I do think they have the players to to play in a back three. Certainly, there's a, there's a couple of players who I think it suits very well. Actually, uh, Romero, I think, and I don't know whether Davies will play, but he's of all the players in the Premier League, he's the one who looks good wide in a back three, but not really a centre back or a full back in a back four. But I'm looking forward to it. I mean. We talked a bit about Conte earlier. We didn't really talk about his style and that kind of thing. But I must say, I've been surprised at how many people have been saying, oh, he's, he's a bit defensive or, you know, he's a bit too much like Mourinho and Nuno. I've never found his size boring to watch. 
I think they're often quite thrilling to watch. They're okay, they're less concerned with possession than a Guardiola side. They don't quite play at the tempo of a club side, but they play really good passing combinations. They work the ball through the lines well. He always gets the two centre forwards, if he's using two centre forwards, having a great understanding, a great partnership. You know, the way that um, the interplayed last season, I thought at times they were fantastic to watch. So I'm, I'm looking forward to to what he does overall and just looking forward to watching some Tottenham games, which I, I don't think you could ever say under Nuno. I mean, they were they were really quite wretched. Mm. Unfortunately, you won't be able to watch that game because it's not on telly unless you're somewhere else or have other means. At Sunday, 2 o'clock, Everton Spurs when I think it's the Arsenal-Watford match that the uh, viewers will be treated to. We'll discuss that game and so much more next. We're all driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. According to that own survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Remember the last time you were hiring and how slow and overwhelming it was? Well, you don't need to go through all that again. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent. And because you listen to The Totally Football Show, Indeed is going to give you a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash totally. That's I-N-D-E-E-D.com slash totally. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed at Indeed.com. We're sponsored for this episode of The Totally Football Show by Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform helping you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, which is up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And what's more, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 support is there to help your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Now, because you listen to The Totally Football Show, you can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash totally, all in lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash totally to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's S-H-O-P-I-F-Y dot com slash totally. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Oh, if you're enjoying hearing Michael and Duncan, but think, hmm, it'd be great to actually be in the room while they're doing some of this football talking. Well, the news is, Totally Football Show is going live again. We're going to be appearing at Leicester Square Theatre on Tuesday the 1st of February. That's Tuesday the 1st of February. And uh, you can get all the details for tickets and that at leicestersquaretheatre.com. Crikey. Newcastle taking on Brighton this weekend. That's Saturday at 5.30. It's now over a fortnight since they've been Steve Bruce in the middle of a relegation scrap. They've slipped further from safety in the interim. Uh, They're now six points off 17th place. 
Uh, and what's this? Newcastle have faced Brighton more times without winning than they have any other team in the Premier League. They haven't scored in the last four meetings with the Seagulls. Both fixtures last season finished 3-0 to the Seagulls. I know you're not a fan of history in that, Michael, but that sounds ominous. Yeah, it does. I remember watching one of the games last year. I think it was the one at St. James's. And in terms of possession dominance in the first half, it was something crazy. It was something like 85% possession to Brighton. And you can imagine the same thing happening this time around because, I mean, Newcastle don't seem to even try to have long spells of keeping possession. And Graham Jones's approach so far seems to have been trying to work on them, their defensive shape. But they were very deep and very compact against uh, against Chelsea last weekend. I guess they'll be playing on the transition through through Sam Maximan and Wilson, but yeah, I think Brighton will have an incredible amount of, uh, of possession in this game. Instead of trying to poach the manager from a seaside town in, in southern Spain, should they be trying to uh, poach a, a manager from a seaside town in southern England named Graham <laughs> Potter? I don't think I don't think Villarreal is it's definitely not in the south. I don't think it's quite by the seaside either. Is it no, not? It's more no. sort of Valencia way, isn't it? Yeah. All right. Still, though, Graham Potter. <laughs> El Potter. Um, no, I, I mean, Potter would be a bit mad to take it, I would think. He's got a, he's got a good project going on at, at, um, at Brighton. It's quite it's interesting, isn't it, this game? Because they obviously came up together from the championship. Um, it was the most geographically distanced promotion in English top flight history. Um, Another of the big records. Of. Make history there, yeah, big time. Um, <laughs> and as you mentioned, Brighton have got this amazing record against Newcastle in the Premier League. And mm. obviously, it, they're very different sizes of clubs and sorts of clubs. And But it is quite instructive to how progressive Brighton are and you know will presumably continue to be versus the kind of lurching from disaster to survival that, that Newcastle tends to do. I don't think Graham Potter would take that job. Um, I mean, he didn't take the Tottenham job in the summer, so um, I can't imagine he'd be rushing up to Newcastle. Uh, I think there's a lot of managers who would want to be the one after the next Newcastle manager um, who don't really fancy doing the next six or seven months and attempting to keep these boys in the division, but would quite fancy it next summer when you've got £200 million to spend um, and a clean slate to go out, I think it becomes far more attractive, which is probably why they're ending up with a guy who's, you know, unattached to a club and available. Right. Which isn't a great way of billing Eddie Howe, but how positive do you feel about him, the man who basically made Bournemouth a, a Premier League entity? It's funny, isn't it? It's all, it's all about framing. It's, you know, is he the guy who took Bournemouth down or is he the guy who took Bournemouth up through the divisions and kept them in the Premier League mm. for a really long time. Someone was saying to me yesterday that he's actually a relegation specialist in that, you know, for years he mm. kept Bournemouth in the Premier League. Um, it was just that he very rarely, because they so often performed well, they were very rarely actually in a relegation dogfight, but they were describing him as a relegation specialist for that reason. I think he will find it very, very difficult in that he, you know, he... I can't even remember that well how Bournemouth played, but they, they seemed to play progressively, didn't they? Um, I think he will find it difficult with this group of players. That's the thing, isn't it? Because one of the phrases around Eddie Howe is the Eddie Howe philosophy. People always used to say that a lot. Oh, have you seen you know, young Eddie Howe with his philosophy? But 
if you actually look at Bournemouth in his time there, they, they came up, and like you say, Adam, they were quite progressive, I think, at the start, but they kind of became increasingly direct as time went on, and, and the season they went down, they really were essentially hitting it pretty long. So I don't think he necessarily does have a, a sort of ingrained philosophy. And they defended poorly as well. That's the, that's the other thing. They conceded a lot of goals year in, year out. Adam, as someone who's written a lot about the takeover in Saudi Arabia and the problematic aspects of it, do you have any thoughts or feelings about... I mean, Eddie Howe's basically the first person to actively sign up for this, isn't he? You know, the players were there already, the supporters, we can talk about their involvement. But do you sense that there will be anyone who is, you know, any managerial candidate who would be uneasy at taking over this kind of job? Well, Unai Emery potentially falls into that category. Mm. Don't think Unai Emery was that cautious about it on Monday, um, <laughs> by, by, by Tuesday or Wednesday maybe. Um, I don't think managers or players are viewing it this way at all. Certainly not what I've certainly not what I've heard. Um, I think they know that they will probably have to answer a few questions at some point, probably in their first few press conferences. I think from speaking to sort of a couple of different coaches that were maybe involved earlier on in that process, the concern seems to be far more, they wanted to know what these owners were about in terms of their vision for the club, what the transfer budget's going to be, what the plan is to reconnect the club with the fans, how much freedom they'll have, you know, will there be a sporting director that's going to take decisions, will the ownership be very hands-on in terms of, you know, because of, I suppose, the reputation that certain members of the public investment fund have you know will there be the freedom to do the job or will will mbs be calling up on a friday to say who he wants at left back on a saturday i think those are the sort of questions that are worrying managers more than you know what's the record on human rights i think i think for for those involved in football there's a kind of we play we're just playing the game we're just managing the rest of it's for you guys to to debate about look it might be proved wrong there might be a player who comes along in the next couple of transfer windows who says I don't fancy that but there's nothing at the moment to suggest um, suggest I mean even you know sort of speaking to a few agents who I know themselves were saying oh you know this is really bad for English football and then a week later were saying oh I've been on to Newcastle trying to get my player in in January and I quite like the agents fee Um, so and when the agents aren't showing the ethical uh you know (laughs) exactly exactly really start to worry exactly so yeah I Mm. don't know I mean Eddie Howe needs a job, doesn't he? I think that's the way he'll be viewing it. Mm. If he All doesn't right. take a job soon, he'll be like the Generation X Alan Kerbishley. So. Yeah, there he is. <laughs> Alan Kerbishley. Nice one, Duncan. Okay, next up, more of the big battle at the bottom. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Elsewhere this weekend, Watford, who are not looking for a manager this week, visit Arsenal, Leeds host Leicester, Brentford take on travelling points dispensers Norwich, uh, Palace play Wolves and kicking it all off on Friday, Saints Aston Villa. Michael, we had Daniel on Monday essentially revealing that he's now a fully paid up Arteta fanatic. Uh, I think those were his words. W- what about you? Have you won the battle with yourself? Do you now trust the process? No, I mean, they're, they're looking all right this season. I think this season there's no real excuses for him. He's been able to bring in some of his players. There's been quite an overhaul, really, since he became manager in terms of the playing squad. I think they're inconsistently good at the moment. They've been excellent in bursts against Tottenham, Aston Villa uh, and Leicester. 
But I think they, they have big wobbles in games as well. I mean, against Leicester, but obviously Ramsdale was fantastic, but Ramsdale was partly fantastic because mm. he had to make a lot of saves and that doesn't necessarily speak to how well the team played overall. Um, I think they're all right. I think they're roughly as good as they should be. So I wouldn't go OTT on um, on praising Arteta, although I must say I've, I've generally liked what he's done so far. Can they make history and get back into the Champions League? Well, I think you, that's... That's too far. I don't think anyone would use make history in that, <laughs> in that respect. But uh, even for Arsenal getting back into the Champions League, harsh. Well, they're fielding the youngest starting eleven in the Premier League. That seems like the kind of thing that mm. would wrongly be people would wrongly use make history for. Mm. It's just buying time, though. Picking teams this young and using these younger players, um, I think it certainly with the fans it gives more patience um, to it than you know if he was using. Willian and Cedric Suarez for another season. Um, yeah. I think, you know, the, the level of tolerance is higher. I think, yeah, I definitely went too soon earlier this season in basically writing off the entire Arteta project after the 5-0 against Manchester City. So if you're listening, Mikel, I'm sorry. All right, nine games unbeaten in all competitions for Arsenal. A fair chance they'll make it 10 when they take on Watford, who've only ever won once at Arsenal in the Premier League, although that was under an Italian manager. Walter Mazzari in 2017. Watford are one of three teams with Aston Villa and Leeds parked just above the bottom three of Burnley, Newcastle and Norwich. Watford, Villa and Leeds, as I say, above them on 10 points. And then just one place and point better off than them are Southampton, who will be facing Aston Villa on Friday night. Ooh, Villa in some trouble. Four defeats in a row. We talked about this a little bit in the, the threat to Dean Smith. Uh, in an earlier pod. Uh, those games coming up this weekend, which, which catch your eyes of, of the ones we haven't discussed yet? You've got Saints-Aston Villa on Friday, Leeds-Leicester on Sunday at 2 o'clock, Brentford-Norwich, uh, Saturday at 3. Norwich here against sort of living reminders of what a promoted side can or should be doing. And also Crystal Palace-Wolves, Saturday 3 o'clock, which doesn't in any way fit into the relegation picture, but still is happening. Well, that's the one I think is most interesting, actually. Crystal Palace Wolves? Yeah, because they're in a similar situation. They're they're clubs who elected to move on from a manager at the end of last season. I don't think either Nuno or Hodgson were doing sackably bad jobs, but they said it's time to make a change, it's time to play more positive football. I don't think it was an easy task to follow either of those managers because they had a very set way of playing, quite a defensive way of playing. But I think you've got to give a lot of credit to both Vieira and, and Bruno Lager. They've... The, the results have been broadly good. I think Palace have been a little bit unlucky. In fact, both sides have been unlucky in terms of their results because Wolves were unlucky in the first few games. But the style has, has been good. The underlying numbers has, have been good. Um, whether they'll produce a good game between them, I don't know. But I think it's um, I think both both clubs and probably both you know the the board of both clubs deserve credit for for pretty good hires in the summer that so far have gone pretty well. Wolves have quietly crept up to seventh place in the standings after taking 13 points from the last 15 available, and they haven't even played Norwich yet, although the fixture list was uh, Saints, Newcastle, Villa and Leeds, which is kind of a tour of the bottom end, and, and, and then they had Everton, who have been struggling, as we, as we mentioned. Duncan? Yeah, I mean, to echo what Michael said, this is the sort of underlying numbers classico in a sense. Um, you know, and it, is good. it just does show how football has changed. You know, you could see Palace and, and Wolves start a little slowly, but but look pretty good. Um, and the reverse to that was Tottenham, who obviously started with three wins out of three, but their numbers were awful. And it was like 
you know, in fact, one of their games was away at Wolves, where Wolves absolutely battered them, but Spurs won one nil. Um, and it is quite instructive, I think, that these days, you know, the managers that go early tend to be the ones that don't necessarily have the worst league position, but do have the worst sort of uh, performances based on numbers. Hmm. Excellent. Did you want to pick out anything else from those other games, or should we get on to some other topics? I think I say this every time I come on here, but Leeds still worry me. Um, as someone mm. quite fond of um, Bielsa and obviously what they did last season, um, I th- I- I'm very worried about them. I don't think they're making enough chances. I think they're incredibly dependent on Rafinha to basically do everything from an attacking point of view at the moment. Um, they've scored a really low number of goals as well. And we know that they don't they don't keep clean sheets. And that's, you know, that's ultimately the the thing that makes me really worried because at some point in the season, if they're going to be down there, they're probably going to have to win three or four games, one nil. Um, And I don't think they're capable of doing that. So I don't know if, um, Duncan, do the numbers back up my concern? Well, the Rafinha point, he's um, not only has he scored 40% of Leeds goals this season, um, he's created the most chances, he's had the most shots and completed the most dribbles. So it is essentially a a sort of one-man attack. And and their conversion rate, it's funny because conversion rate is such a simple metric but it does tell a story a lot of the time you know if, you, if you're not scoring goals it's, it's going to be an issue and Leeds last season was 12% which is which is decent um, that's dropped to 7% now um, and 7% 8% and lower is basically you know a worry mm. um, because even if you are being quite creative which Leeds aren't necessarily being in every game you're still wasting a lot of opportunities so yeah it's um I share Adam's concern. not the solution then for Bielsa. They've got Chelsea, Man City and Liverpool coming up in December. So they might want to get some points on the board uh, this month, being as they are just three points above the drop. Very good. All right. Well, other things are on the way, including Xavi and Wickham Wanderers news, although possibly not in that order. First, though, let's get some odds from Carl Monaghan of Paddy Power and producer Charlie. Hello, listener. Have you seen this weekend's fixture list? Eh? Of course you have. You've been listening to the podcast up to this point. Two of the top four meet on Sunday. The big four, as I like to call them. West Ham v Liverpool. Carl Monaghan from Paddy Power. Can the Hammers inflict the first defeat of the season on Jurgen Klopp's side? Well, this is a very interesting game, Charlie, in the context of what happened last year in similar circumstances. The Hammers have been in good form, winning six on the bounce. And instead of trying to land a few punches on Liverpool last season, Moyes decided to retreat into his shell and form a game plan that was all about containing Liverpool. The result was that Liverpool won comfortably 3-1 and that Moyes just didn't have the confidence in his side to at least have a go. This year, West Ham look a lot better. Boys has them flying. And if Declan Rice had a 100 million price tag slapped on him last season, can you imagine how much they would demand from this summer if he continues to improve at such an alarming rate? Anyway, back to the game in question, Charlie. West Ham are 15-4 to to win it. The draw is 14-5. to And Liverpool are the favourites at 7-10. to Now, West Ham, certainly an upgrade on last season. So they'll have a go here. Have a look at the score draw at 7-2. to As it's nearly impossible to keep Mo Salah off of the score sheet these days, Charlie. Before that, on Saturday, there's something happening in Manchester. Now, in a flip-reverse universe, Cristiano Ronaldo would be lining up at Old Trafford in a blue shirt. So he's bound to score on Saturday for United, Carl. We saw in Bergamo on Tuesday night more of what we already suspected, and that is Ronaldo being freakishly good in front of goal yet again. The knockers have tried their best to say it doesn't work, but his goal record of 9-11 and 11 in all comps 
so far this season. Kind of flies in the face of that, Charlie. CR7 is 11-2 to two to score the first goal. That's a pretty decent price, in fairness. He's 7-4 to any time in terms of the match betting for the derby. The fact that City come into the game after getting their pants pulled down by Vieira's Eagles and the news that Varane is likely to miss out with injury, this makes it a very tricky game for under-fire Ole. United are 15-4 to for the win. The draw is 14-5 to as City are the odds-on favourites at 4-6. to You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. It's a good metric for most pursuits, of course. Uh, The Toby Football League show is also out on Thursday. It'll feature probably chat about Ipswich ending Wickham's 100% winning record at home. That was quite a spectacular game. Uh, Duncan, were you were you there? I wasn't there, but I was watching the game. Um, right. yeah, it was a really good match, end to end. Particularly Ipswich's fourth goal was um, Wickham goalkeeper David Stockdale was robbed in the centre circle, which, I mean, I've seen Manuel Neuer do it, but it's not ideal. But, I mean, basically, Ipswich's second, third and fourth goals all came from counter-attacks from Wickham attacking set pieces. So it could have right. gone another way, but it, it very much didn't. How are you doing in League One? Um, fourth. So that I mean that result combined with a few others could have put us top if we'd have won the game. So you know it's fine. It's fine. And please rip switch. They've had a, they've had a rough few years. So um, you know at least one team in East Anglia is scoring goals and winning games. Very magnanimous. Speaking of spectacular, Blackburn took on Fulham Wednesday night and got beaten seven nil. That's Rovers' heaviest ever home defeat. And it sees Fulham closing the gap at the top of the table to Scott Parker's Bournemouth. Uh, they suffered their first league defeat of the season at home to Preston. You can get more of this kind of talk in the Totally Football League show out on Thursday. Elsewhere, in what's been a quiet week for managers on the move, Xavi is reportedly edging closer to becoming the next Barcelona boss. Barca officials flew out to Doha to hold talks with the Al Sad manager. Adam, what have you got on this? Are you are you in the in the loop on this one as well? Uh, not massively. Only what I've read, kind of elsewhere, right. which is that the Qataris seem to be holding out for a bit of money um, right. from Barcelona. Barcelona clearly don't have very much money, no. um, but Laporta seems to have decided that you know it's time for Xavi. I keep just seeing that same clip of Al Sad scoring, or no, not even scoring a goal, just playing out from the back and then missing a chance. I think at the end of it being repeated on loop on Twitter as an indication of his wonderful style. Um, I don't know if the guys have seen any more of Al Sad over the years to suggest that, you know, Xavi is um, going to sort of transform Barcelona. Right. Well, Michael, you've done a big thing about uh, Xavi and what his kind of football is. Is he the new Pep or is he the new Pirlo? <laughs> um it's tough to judge. I mean, I did watch a little bit of Al Sad, and then I got some uh, some data from um, a company called Twenty First Group, I think they're called now. Who kind of one of the things they do is they measure the strengths of various leagues, and essentially the Qatari top flight is roughly equivalent to the fourth or fifth tier in English football. So it's difficult, really, to judge how good Al Sadd are. I mean, the style of football is is interesting and what you would expect from Xavi, but yeah, he hasn't had much of a test, I would suggest, in Qatar. But um, 
there were some interesting things from from watching him play. I mean, he, he clearly wants to. I can't remember his name, but outside's goalkeeper, very two footed, very good with the ball at his feet. The centre backs carry the ball well. We've got this very unknown player called Santi Cazorla in midfield, who I think could really do a job for Barcelona. Um, and and Andre Ayu is there, which I had no idea about. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think he will get appointed when he, and I I don't think it's um, it's going to be exciting, but I think it's going to be a long road back to uh, to competing properly at the top of the league for Barcelona. M- Michael, considering obviously Barcelona won't have money to spend to transform the squad in the way that you know when Guardiola goes to Man City to get you know his ideal people in each position, he's not going to have that at Barcelona. Do Barcelona have the players to actually play with that? what we consider to be Barcelona's style? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think the key thing is that they do have some very, very good young players. Um, I think with Pedri and Gavi, the two teenage you know, midfielders who I, I think is not unfair to say could become the next Xavi and Iniesta, I think probably those two are a big reason why Xavi might consider taking on the job because he has an opportunity to develop them over maybe five years and turn them, hopefully, into world-class players. And actually, when you do look at the squad, they have got options. I mean, Memphis Depay isn't messy, but he's he's got a lot of potential. Um, Ansu Fati's a tremendous talent. Frankie de Jong, people have talked about as, you know, potentially one of the best midfielders of his generation. I think in the recent Classico, probably Busquets and Alba were the best two players, which isn't a good sign, but they're still useful. So I, I don't think the squad is disastrously bad I just think that the in the history of football there's never been a side that has suffered as big a loss as Messi because he did everything for them for 10 years and they weren't prepared to lose him and they didn't get any money for losing him so it's so difficult to move on from that so now it's okay to talk about teams making history I see Michael (laughs) metric for you one metric for everybody else what did I say did I say making history well you kind of did I mean I think we all heard it. Yeah. Uh, anyway, well, there you go. That's an exciting move in prospect. More as we know more. And, of course, uh, we'll be all over that story or, or whatever substituted it in next Tuesday's European edition of the Totally Football Show. Before that, we're around on Monday looking back on what happens around the leagues on, or around the Premier League at least, on the weekend. So do join us for that. Uh, for now, though, it's many, many thanks to Michael Cox, to Adam Craft, and to Duncan Alexander, producer Charlie And most of all, you listener, have a great weekend. And we'll be back with you soon on The Totally Show. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an Athletic Media Company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.